And we are live with our 64th episode of Absolute Absec. I'm Ken Johnson at CK Tricky on Twitter, joined by my co-host Seth Law at Seth Law on Twitter. Seth, say hi. Hey, hey everybody. Welcome once again. Um, tonight's a very special episode. Ken's in Austin and Oh wait, wait! Ken's somewhere in a hotel room. Dang it! Yeah, <laughs> I, I totally gonna, revealed like, you. I had totally doxed you, man. Sorry. Yeah, I was gonna show everybody like, uh, yeah, Austin. You probably can't see much, but it's like, yeah, the Austin skyline back there. So, um, here for so GitHub, we're having a uh, summit, company summit out here. So we are. There's a bunch of us out there. Um, that's not top secret info. Like it's all over Twitter. People are tweeting about it. So. Anyways, company summing out here um, in the hotel. Awesome. And, yeah. yeah, but I mean, we are we are at episode sixty four. Um, you know, whatever that is in hex, right? That's <clears throat> what we're gonna start doing. Is we're gonna start doing a hex. Such a nerd. Such nerds. <laughs> this is what oh, happens man. when it's just me. Retreat to the nerdery. Yeah, me and Ken on the podcast is we, we just we we do deep dives into nerdery. That's that's. That's all we have. Sorry, guys. You'll have to put up with it this week. Um, it was announced that, uh, like, we are teaching. Uh, we talked about this a little bit last week. We are teaching our course at Global AppSec DC in September. If you're going to be there, please consider us. It's uh, Seth and Ken's Excellent Adventures in Secure Code Review. Um, and registration is live for those. I uh, Dula said that he did have that up, right? I, I don't know if I found the link for that yet, but maybe we'll post that. Um, yeah, I think they're waiting on some. I thought they were waiting on some confirmations before they. Did, I don't. Know. Yeah, I think okay. maybe they did. I don't know. Well, w watch our Twitter account. I mean, we'll obviously be tweeting out about it once that goes live, um, and once people can register. Uh, it'll be a good, that'll be a good time as always. Um, other, besides that, if you're going to be in London for Black Hat Europe, we're going to be teaching there. That's in early December. Um, so, and AppSec Day in Melbourne once again. So there's opportunities around. Um, Ken and I love to talk about this stuff. We're doing a, an update to the course. Like we've taught it a few times now and we've got some tweaks that we're going to make for it. Um, so there's going to be some new, some new exercises, some new content, expanded some stuff out, and you know, dropping some of the stuff that maybe doesn't quite need to be in there. It doesn't need to be as much as as much of a focus. We're kind of reworking some of it. So, um, but it's still all stuff that we use on a daily basis, um, and it's been super useful for me. I think it has been for Ken as well. So yeah, we're that's, awesome. That's the come 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 take our training. We're, we're <laughs> awesome. Well, Ken's awesome. I'm just uh. tired and old, right? <laughs> Hey man, I can be tired and old too. That's definitely how I'm feeling for sure. Yeah. So, uh, so yeah, no, I mean like there's so much to talk about this week. It's it's crazy what all's. I mean, just in the last few days over the weekend, the the Zoom vulnerability. I know we're gonna get into. I mean, like it's it's been a it's been like a weirdly potent and active week, I guess, in, in infosec. So yeah, yeah, I, and I know I I'm trying to think if we. We never got to the number one on the Port Swigger OWASP top 10. We may have to come back to that. I think it's a YouTube presentation from Orange Sci. So. Oh, it's probably SSRF related then if it's from Orange Sci. I mean, maybe. 
Yeah, take your path normalization off and pop ODAs out, breaking parser logic. So oh, okay. Maybe is. Yeah, some, right. either, it's RC of some kind, SSRF, who knows? Like, yeah, I have to look at it, but yeah, I don't think we'll, we'll get to that tonight, uh, mainly because I didn't do any brushing up on that, so. Yeah, and we've got a bunch of other stuff that we can we can talk about too. Um, yeah, I'm trying to remember if there's anything else that we needed to promote as far as. I think I, yeah, because I know Lascon's CFT and CFP closed, and um, yeah, I mean that's the last I could think of that was open and well <clears throat> it might be I, i'm sure there's some OWASP conferences like i know that the amsterdam the amsterdam one i it, did that already close the amsterdam cft yeah CFP? yeah the, the cfts and cfps are closed uh so i think we're just waiting on you know what what is going to be at that conference right now they haven't necessarily announced anything yet um, where it is so close to global appsec dc right you know and you and i just got done reviewing like well you actually were um good and did both conferences i (laughs) I only got shame in my shame i only got to reviewing the the cfps for one conference but uh anyways i almost feel like it would be worthwhile to um make a blog post about what it you know writing a cfp or a cft Cause it's pretty much the, like the similar, a, a similar concept, but I mean, we could probably summarize it. it. Like the things that I can tell you right off the bat turned, turned me off. Um, or just like the, the submissions that were like two, three sentences long. I mean that it's like, you don't really yeah. care, you know, is how that, how that kind of comes off. Like you don't, or, or it's just not really fleshed out. And that's, yeah, that's equally bad. Or, yeah, I'm not sure which one's worse, but also outlines that are super hand wavy and don't like don't describe in enough detail to sort of understand. Like, I'm trying to think of a good example, but um, anything that's too vague, I guess. Like my description of this style of. <laughs> <laughs> so, what are you saying, Ken? What What are you trying to get into here? No, I. I I mean, I get what you're saying, right? Like, is it like from the reviewer side, the amount of time that you put into your, the amount of thought that you put in and care that you put into your CFP or CFT is pretty obvious, right? If it's just something off the cuff that you threw in there at the last minute that no one else reviewed, yeah, it it shows, right? And I know I like, I'm guilty of this as well. I know that I've put in CFPs before where I'm just like, oh crap, it closes tonight. I need something. And so I'm going to put some, you know, uh, I'm just going to write something out really quick and throw it in there. But you know, most of those, you know, I know they don't get picked up, right? Because it is, yeah, I I mean, it's last minute, right? And and if you go, there's a lot of good advice from like, the DEFCON, you know, CFP review board, and even the Black Hat review board, like they come out and they say, these are good submissions, right? And it's it's basically the the thoroughness, like how much time you put in, how much effort you put in actually before you submit comes through and it shows. Like if you've already done a lot of research, it's easy to write an abstract about it. If you haven't done any research, it's really difficult because you don't know what you're going to find, Right. 
So, yeah, yeah. yeah it's, it's almost it's like, good. yeah, you got to start planning more than the day before. It's really what it boils down to. Yeah. And I guess like one example of kind of being, yeah, not just saying like breaking parser, like you could just say break. Cause I was thinking of orange size submission. If, if you just wrote breaking parser logic, like as one of your, you know, one of your, like, I don't know, as part of your thin outline, we'll say, and that's it. There's no more other, there's no other description, like nothing in your description of the talk, just like, like, I don't know, attacking the web. And then, you know, one of the bullet points is like breaking parser logic. You know, there needs to be some, like, what do you mean? You know, what do you just describe it a little bit? So I don't know, it's yeah. kind of hard to, but I think, you know, a well thought out written um, abstract goes a long way. And then from there you actually, you know, can, can delve into the contents and, and the merit. So yeah. anyways, just something that was on my mind since we just did a ton of reviews. It was like people, come on, you know, yeah. a little bit more. Yeah, if, if I had to have to hear any more about shifting left <laughs> in, in <laughs> DevOps, I'm gonna, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. and, and it's always like that, right? Every conference, right? Cause there, there's kind of the hot topics and everybody wants to talk about those, which which is completely valid. That, that was the other thing that I was gonna say is, okay, it's great that that's what you wanna talk about, but tell me why you're different, right? Just for the love, you know, uh, if, if you're just, you know, okay, what's your experience, right? Yes, oh, this is what we did and, you know, shifting left in our you know, in our organization, at least give me something to hang my hat on as far as a reviewer that says, this is why your experience is different than everybody else's, right? If you can do that, right, differentiate yourself somehow, especially on those hot topics, you're gonna get picked up. But if you can't, then go back and consider it. Like, think about it, right? It shouldn't take that much more thought. But anyway, that, that was yeah. my big complaint. It was the, you know, so many of the talks sounded the same. And, you know, through no fault of, the, fault of their own, like the third or fourth time that I read that, like I'm rating that lower because I've read it three or four times just in the course of like analyzing all of the different talk submissions. And it may have been that the third or fourth one was better than the first one, but just the sheer amount made it hard to hard to find the the diamond in the rough there. So, I will say every time I see somebody come out and talk about this process of like reviewing submissions and give kind of like this the kind of feedback we just gave, you always see like a shit storm on Twitter. So I wait for can't wait for that one. We'll see what uh, <laughs> if we get some comments or some tweets about this one. No, but I mean, it's all meant, I mean, but where we're coming from is a place of like, I want you to do well, you know? So it's not like I'm here, you either you or, you or I are here criticizing people. It's like, no, we want you to do well. So here's some like pro tips on getting yeah. Anyways. And, yeah, and part of, yeah. I mean, part of the reason that I say that too is because I know I've done that, right? Like I know that I've had like very abstract, abstracts right that just didn't delve into detail and so like it made me reconsider okay what is it that i'm putting into abstracts and into outlines am i actually giving it the proper due right the, to make sure that it it impresses or it spells out what i actually want to talk about so yeah i mean i can tell you with the, the i mean so we got accepted you talk you mentioned we got accepted to black hat london that was our third time submitting and like that was a tedious, detailed, drawn out, but we kept iterating upon, you know, okay, is this well, is this presenting itself well, you know, et cetera. And then 
eventually, I guess, get the formula right or it was right for the conference, whatever the thing was. But there was, you know, a lot of information and detail in in that submission. So anyways, yep. yeah, whatever. Big deal. It's not a big deal. It's just, you know, trying to help. So, so apparently Ken and I can rant on anything for 15 minutes. So if you give us a topic. <laughs> That's what we learned tonight is we can just complain about anything for 15 minutes. Yeah. Well, Tell me about those bug bounty submissions again. Never mind. Yeah. I mean, which brings us to, which is one of the points you and I were talking about before we started uh, live was the fact that, well, let's just jump into it. I think let's hit the Zoom one real quick. Well, not real quick, but because nothing yeah, we do apparently is real quick. So, uh, but yeah, so, you know, if, for, if you weren't following along and we'll post the link in there, a researcher reported that they, so they followed the public disclosure timeline they gave themselves, which was, you know, like it's, I guess 90 days is the, you know, the supposed responsible disclosure timeline. Um, I think, and you know, John Callahan just today um, made a good point, which we should probably reach out to John at some point and have him on. But uh, he he made a good point today, which was like, yeah, the whole point of responsible disclosure is, you know, in the ninety day timelines, like if you, well, you know what? Let me go back. Sorry, let me let me before I get off track, because this is what I do. I'm going to get off track. All right, so getting back to it. Sorry. The, the, the Zoom researcher stuck to this 90-day timeline and basically said, okay, well, 90 days is up. I'm going to publicly disclose the bone. And all it was was like, well, I shouldn't say all it was. It's a big deal. But um, Zoom basically runs a local host on your on your machine. And I guess this is a pass for cores protections. Um, it's like using that as sort of a hack to um, do a couple things. It takes parameters and... Um, basically listens, takes parameters, does stuff, launches like the client, um, joins a meeting. And um, in this case, uh, there were a few things that could, you know, from that basic point that could go wrong, like you could do a denial of service by like trying to launch the, and by the way, for this to be exploited, a user just has to like visit a website. That's all it is. Just visit a website. The website calls the local host client over the Zoom protocol and boom, like, it's it's launching stuff. So in this case, if it launched a bunch of invalid calls, could dosh your machine. Um, I think the the other big thing was a claim that you know there's essentially remote code execution. But I'm I'm unclear, Seth. I'm unclear on whether that is the the piece we were talking about, which is like, okay, well, Tenable in the last six months found this RC via crafting UDP packets in the Zoom client. So combining my volume with theirs would be the RC. Because um, I know there's definitely like, you can remotely get the Zoom client to do stuff. Um, like join a video chat and turn on their camera and like they don't even know that they're doing that as well as just reinstalling the client. So um, even after you've uninstalled Zoom, uh, it has that listening URL, like has that URL still listening, so it can be reinstalled without user interaction. Yeah, yeah. Like I'm not, I'm not sure the the tenable or the Nessus um, RCE, but it makes sense to me that like if if you can force the reinstall because you've had it installed before of a specific version and then launch, like. It's basically RCE through CSRF, right? 
because of the the cores uh that because there are no cores restriction where you're calling localhost i i think that's that's kind of the path that's going there right so if i'm i'm constantly running on my website calls to that localhost port like the local server and you happen to visit my site all of a sudden i can make sure that you're running the right version of zoom launch zoom and run the rce and then connect back right that that's the whole chain that the researcher is talking about so yeah and i yeah i think yeah. that going back to what john callahan was mentioning because the real the real crux of the like drama around this if you'll call it that is like the re the researcher we're calling them the researcher um basically said okay well you know from the point that i reported this to the company and they acknowledged you know having having received that report 90 days like i'm like that's just the clock that started i'm not at all in charge of that like you know once it exceeds 90 days boom i have to released. i have to release yeah 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 like i'm this is out of my control which is you know obviously not the case and the point that callahan made was that um that that that's once they're actually working with you on a fix that was the whole point of responsible disclosure in that day timeline so like yeah. you're yeah you're which okay so that's the, the like the, the other part is people are like with the researcher like what are you doing you know that's not it's not that's not awesome you <laughs> know the, the fix the fix the fixes kind of suck Right, like if you actually want to use Zoom and you want to have an update and all that stuff, like right now, the the quick, dirty hacks to keep companies safe um, are really bad. <laughs> They're just not good. Um, yeah, like so, they we're kind of stuck without a, a really good patch right now. Um, and as far as I know, there's no patch out. I mean, let me check Twitter again. But um, have you yeah. seen any actual like fixes for this? Well, there was some stuff that came out. Um... Can like your video's not flipping on? I don't know why. I'm watching the live feed right now, and oh, it's only okay. me. There we go. Yeah, I don't know what's going. On. Sorry. And by the way, I think Hangouts is actually going away, so that's something for us to keep in mind. Yeah. yeah. Sorry. Anyway. What was your question? Okay. Yeah, you were asking whether or not. Yeah. You were asking whether or not there was a fix. Um, I mean, supposedly, like according to the timeline, there was a, you know, regression fix, workaround discovered undisclosed, public disclosure. So there's a, there was a workaround to it. So apparently they're still working on something. Yeah. I guess one of my, one of my issues with, because we, again, we were talking about this right before we went live was you see in this timeline, uh, June 20th, um the researcher was contacted by the company to you know like hop on basically a video chat call and um sort out the the fix that they were going to deploy uh the researcher couldn't make that timeline like they couldn't make that calendar invite so the, then um the next day zoom reported the vulnerability was fixed now the fix was um the original quick fix solution that the researcher gave them as part of their initial submission of the issue. So like when they said, here's the problem, here's the description of it, the researcher also gave them like, yeah, a quick dirty fix. So a lot of this is speculation, but I could totally see a situation where the company 
the company basically says, you know, okay, well, we'll try this fix. And you see it through the timeline. Like they're keep going back and forth. Like, oh, here's some fixes we think we'll fix, you know, or remediate the issue without any further concerns. And the researcher's like, that's not what, this won't work. And that, you know, here's why. So you see that like them going back and forth and back and forth. So I, I think it's totally entirely possible that, um, that the company, you know, was struggling with a solution, just technically, just struggling with the solution. And, um, you know, they, they sort of had to resort, resort to that like dirty solution to, to maybe put out like a, a better longer term solution is my only guess there, but that's me giving them the benefit of the doubt. I have no idea, you know, what, what, what all actually occurred. Right. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I don't know. We'll have to see. I, I mean, one of the reasons this is such a big deal is it's zoom and I like, I know from, you know, being a consultant and like dealing with multiple organizations, like it's one of those things that is part and parcel for actually dealing with companies. There's so many companies that use it. It's not just going to disappear, right? It's like, I, I, I'm like, okay, so what, what do I have to do to not do, to not use Zoom? I'm like, well, that's that's just not an option, and that's I know that's what what multiple people or a lot of people that we've been talking to are struggling with, right? We were talking to Kevin Cody about it earlier, and he was asking, okay, this is supposedly the quick fix, like how I'm supposed to disable the video, and so it can't actually you know run the web server unless I launch Zoom, and he found that the Pila stuff wasn't even working, right? Like some of the recommendations. So I, like I'm, I'm questioning what's what what the end game is for Zoom. Um, I, I mean they've got to fix it somehow, but yeah, it's I'm, a lot of egg, egg on their face. I, I just don't know where they're moving or they're kind of. I, I mean, as as bad as it is, they've got their response, but from a a strict like community involvement perspective. It feels like they're they're trying not to fix the problem and just point blame rather than just digging in and going for it, right? Yeah, um, yeah. I, I would just have I would just have to agree with that. <laughs> I guess that's all I can add. Is it, yeah, it's it's not. Uh, neither side is great. Neither side is great. But I did um I did link to a tweet that showed the actual like one of the workarounds that I guess was working to keep it not only from running the web server, but from not like reinitiating a reinstall and once again, launching that server. Um, yeah, which is the reason to post to show you how kind of funky it is. It's not, yeah, it's, it's not a wonderful fix. So now imagine you need to roll that out to like 2000 people. So that's why yeah. people are upset with the researcher is what I'm trying to say. That's why people are like, hey, this is a bunch of bullshit. You, so many companies are using the software. You kind of host this all in one day. Um, and then again, there, there's the other camp, which is like, hey, you know, if it gets disclosed, it gets fixed. And so, yeah, I mean, I obviously as a blue teamer would prefer that to get reported. But on that note, like, one of the things that stands out as well is the fact that Zoom didn't have a bug bounty program. Again, you and I were talking before the call. The researcher says they reached out on Twitter. That didn't work. They 
reached out to the company's inbox. They got a response like a a while after they had actually emailed them. Um, the security like engineer, uh, well, I guess it, they're pretty short staffed, so they don't have a bug bounty program. It's hard to get in contact with them. And then the, the security engineer was on vacation. Um, so it's obviously not a super mature security program um, to begin with and with no bug bounty program. I think the the, the one interesting thing too that it, it, like the researcher says, one of the reasons they didn't want to take the money when Zoom offered them uh, a financial reward was that the company would was saying you can't disclose this publicly. And it's it's just interesting to think about in your bounty program like for us at GitHub, we don't allow necessarily like the researcher to, or I shouldn't say it, we don't, we don't disallow. Um, it, so the way we manage it is we, like I'm trying to explain this the, the, the easiest way possible. Um, the way we manage it is we actually release a summarized version on our bounty site. So once you find something, we'll release a summarized version. Um, and then for the most part, it's like, Hey, don't disclose this, uh, you know, while we're in the process of triaging it and working things out and trying to get the result. Um, yeah, like there's, it, it's <clears throat> to say you can't disclose it at all. is pretty, yeah, it's, it's pretty bad for the researcher because that's yeah. like their, their, their personal brand. Yeah. I mean, that's, and that's part of the reason that, the researchers get involved is actually to build that brand up, right? So, I mean, but you know, that's that's kind of what you get with those private bounties. I know it's a mix; it's all over the board as far as what you can actually disclose and what you can't. Yeah, I mean, it's to not have an easy way for them to get in contact with you to begin with, and not like having a formalized, not even like a formalized bounty program, but even just a, a formalized way of researching your security or sorry, the researcher contacting your security team just, yeah, it doesn't bode well for everything else. Right. So, but yeah. yeah, you want, this is a good, strong reason to have community interaction. Bug bounty is one, one of the ways to do that, but yeah, just having a way for people to contact you and like have fostering good community relations. So definitely it doesn't feel like zoom was doing anything wrong. They just, it felt like they're just, it's an immature security, like not, sorry, not purposefully wrong, nothing malicious, just like an maybe immature program. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if anything, I'm sure they'll learn from this and, and bounce back and try to, you know, try to repair the PR fail that, you know, has kind of gone along with it. So, I mean, we'll see. It'll be interesting to watch what the the response is and what happens over the next week, because I'm sure there there'll be there'll still be some back and forth. I mean, we're obviously still kind of in the midst of it, whether or not it's actually fixed and what the what the, what the proper solution is. Yeah, I mean, it's with video and and with like that kind of software. Um, I would argue, you know, GitHub, Zoom, Slack, like your people are concerned with the, the the trust aspect of trusting the company that they're that has this sen sensitive data right <clears throat> and i would argue like private uh meetings are definitely you know that's that's a scary thing you want to be able to trust the company so stuff like this 
just from a reputation, you said it, you said it best, like with the, the fact that it's a PR issue, it's, it's, that's the most damaging aspect when trust, like digital trust is, um, so important to your business model. So, yeah, like targets, not necessarily, that's not like their biggest selling point, right? When they, when they got breached, they bounced right back, but that's not necessarily the case for the, you know, for the software companies. So. Well, yeah, I mean, their bread and butter uh, targets, bread and butter is not people using their software solution. Right? It's just not right. As much as they are a technology company now, they're, they sell physical products and that's what people do. They have physical stores as opposed to zoom. It's a digital product. If people don't trust your brand that you're going to actually secure those messages and not leak data, it, it becomes a much bigger play and a much bigger problem for them than it is for a target or somebody else. But I mean, I don't, I don't see them going away. Uh, you know, it's, I, I mean, I don't even know if they're publicly traded. I kind of doubt it. So we'll, we'll, we'll see what happens. It, sh it just should be interesting to watch. Yeah, no, I think, I, I mean, that kind of segues pretty good into another topic we were going to hit up tonight, which was the, um, Marriott fines. Uh, well, it's not. It wasn't just Marriott. It was another. Oh my god! It was another company. It was, it was like it's it's yeah. Starwood, right? Was, oh right. right. So so Marriott acquired Starwood, um, and that that just happened within the last year, right? Yep. Yep. You want to look at that first? Yeah, I'm trying to find it. I have like two way too many tabs open. It's been a it really has been like a lot of news and I was just trying to keep up with it today. So once I find this link, it's somewhere here, I'll post it. Anyways, sorry, please continue. It was $99 million. Well, I think it was uh, 99 million euro, wasn't it? Oh yeah, it was. You're right. Sorry. My bad. Um, gosh, I just have too many things open. Yeah, $123 million. Uh, here's a TechCrunch one. I found one. Hold on. I'll drop it in there. Did you already Sweet. find one? Uh, no, I found... Well, I found the one that I was reading, yeah. But it doesn't matter. Like, I, I can put... Um, we can just put both in there. Yeah, so... Yep. Yes. Because yep. mine was mine was in pounds because it was by the... It was the BBC reporting it, so... Oh, uh, well, see, there you go. Yours is... The American tech crunch. Yeah. Yep. So, so I mean, everybody knows, I think everybody knows they've been breached, right? Or they were breached a, a while back. That's no surprise. And I guess well, with yeah, GDPR, I mean, that's what kicked it off, the fines? Yeah. So the breach went from 2014 to November 2018, right? Um, and it wasn't the Marriott systems. It was the Starwood properties, right? Um so uh, the problem here is that Marriott failed. Like, I, I don't think they took this into account when they acquired Starwood, that there could be fines coming from it. And that's why it's such a big deal uh, is they're basically, yeah, I, I mean, $130 you know, million or whatever that is. That's a, that's a pretty big hit to take when you just acquired a company, right? It, like you would think that you would, devalue the company before you actually did that. But yeah, they must have not saw coming at all. Cause and like part of the, um, the acquisition 
having been acquired, um, I, the part of the process is like during that acquisition period is you set aside this large chunk of money for literally exactly for these scenarios. But then I don't know what happened, like for how long that's kept, right? So is that, um, it, what I mean kept is it, your shares, like let's say you when you got bought as a company, like the reward was everybody got shares or everybody got cash for shares or whatever the case is. Like if you have shares, they like the money that, um, the, basically the, 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 the money that's sitting in that pot, like if it has to be used, you don't, that, that affects your, your acquisition numbers, right? Naturally. Yep. Um, yep. but I just don't see how you can retroactively apply that. So that has to be like, I'd imagine at acquisition, you know, I don't think there's any, you know, Hey, I could be totally wrong. I'm not a lawyer. Or not, what do I know? But it, you know, I don't know if there's like a 12 month window or whatever. I, don't, I doubt it. Yeah. I don't, I don't know. I, I mean, yeah. The interesting thing is what they're pulling out of the report, right? Is that, Marriott failed to undertake sufficient due diligence when it bought Starwood, right? So, hey, you didn't know about this, number one. And two, should have also done more to secure its systems. So basically the fact that they didn't find this before they purchased Starwood is part of the reason they're getting the fine is, you know, it shows that their process of acquisition was not sufficient to actually identify all the risks and all the weaknesses in the companies that they're acquiring. Yeah, yeah that's, man, that's, that's bad. Like, <laughs> you know, and who knows, who knows if they, they did acquire like a firm that had a nice, they're, I'm not going to shit on any specific firms, but there are definitely firms that, you know, had maybe more of an, uh, less, uh, uh, more, more like regal, uh, you know, sort of positioning at one point and now are, Bought up differently, but there are multiple corporations like that that are now they're larger and they do these assessments for companies um, during acquisition processes. And you know maybe the quality is varies widely between you know some consultants and and others. Um, it's like the most politically correct way I can say that. <laughs> uh, but yeah, like. Um, so you don't know if it's that, like if it was the failure of the auditors or if it's like they didn't, they didn't, they didn't spend enough money or any money or whatever, like to get the, um, yeah, to get enough for the property assessed, I guess. Cause yes, that's what you go through, right? Like you've done them, Seth, I've done them where you do assessments for a company getting acquired. And that is so, that is such one of the, uh, like, a, a big percentage of, of your assessments as a consultant, I feel like. Yeah. You know, I mean, you don't always know the reason behind the assessment on some of those, but I, and it's definitely in the, in the wheelhouse, right. As knowing what you are acquiring. And I, I mean, you know, it's one thing if it's some little application that's barely used, but it's another when it's 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 the central reservation database, right? Like that's, yeah. I I just don't understand where where that f fell down. You know, I, like who knows what the actual like? I haven't I haven't seen this breach report, so I couldn't say. And I haven't done that much digging into it. And that that's where it gets more interesting to us from a security perspective. Is okay. 
number one, how was it breached? And number two, why did the assessors not discover it? Um, because, you know, four years is a really long time for something to be, or someone to have access to your system. I, I don't think there's any, anything, any, anything to say, but that is, that's a really long time. Somebody's got to notice that there's gotta be some detective controls. I mean, we have a whole like slew of frameworks, compliance frameworks that basically say you have to do X, Y, and Z on all of your like main systems. So why wouldn't it catch that on your most important asset? And it, the crazy part of all this is it comes right after a $230 million fine on British Airways who had a similar sort of breach. I mean, $230 million, it's amazing. Like, sorry, let me link to that too. Um, but yeah, it's, it's insane. Like, and this is, I, I've said, I mean, we talk about it all the time, but there's, there's never a shortage of need for like security, but especially, you know, like AppSec, not going anywhere. Um, cool. Well, so, and, I mean, yeah, and that's just it. GDPR, right? Under like the breaches that exist. Yeah. The data protection laws, airline can face fines of up to 4% of its global annual revenue, right? So that's like gross revenue that you can be fined. 4% of that is huge when you think of British Airways or you think of Marriott. Uh, yeah. Yeah, somebody's not getting that 15th vacation home this year. <laughs> They're going to have to make do with the 14 they already have. <laughs> Yeah, kind of slumming it with only 14. Yeah, no, you know, it is, I mean, it's, I hate to be, a, oh, I think people call nihilistic about it, but yeah, um, eh, it's bad, but who knows what it changes. But hopefully with, uh, I'm a little hopeful with like GDPR that it, um, yeah, it is maybe help, helping situation. So I don't know. Well, or I mean, you know, Mar Marius. Marriott's going to take it more seriously, right? And if anything, other companies will look and probably do a better job of assessing companies that they're acquiring rather than just taking their word for, hey, yeah, we're compliant to ISO 27001, right? Like there, there's going to be more due diligence that is performed because of this. And I, that that was the whole point of GDPR. And that's the whole point of these huge fines is the fact that we're talking about it, right? Because it, it, it had it been a $2 million thing or a two, you know, we'd probably be like, eh, and we would move on. It, would, it wouldn't even make the news. So. Yeah, 123 million. That'll make the news. 230 million. That'll make the news. That's, yeah, it's pretty insane. Which, which makes I mean, me wonder why, what, you know, in the States, we don't do the same thing. I don't know if it's just like current administration that doesn't want to, like, I don't want to necessarily get political, but it's interesting to see that the data privacy laws that are being enforced in Europe are actually causing changes around the world uh, and not just in Europe, right? It, it's a better thing for us. I mean, as a consultant, obviously it's better for me because there's more business that's out there because this is happening, right? Um, 
even though these companies are getting these huge fines, that, that means that more people are aware and like there's going to be more opportunity to actually go and assess these applications. But along those lines, like it, it kind of feels like the US were behind, right? We're not we're not on the forefront of pushing compliance or pushing security out. It's other countries that have picked up that banner. Yeah, I mean, I would argue that, um, yeah, that definitely like privacy is, um, I mean, privacy is under attack. I mean, but, but in subtle ways, but this is me getting off. Like I'm see, I'm going to get it off into like a really super paranoid, uh, uh, rant about, um, like Google home and, and Alexa and echoes and all that fun stuff. So probably I Alexa, should just not order order Seth some new toothpaste. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, share his deepest darkest uh, secrets with. Um yeah, no, I I yeah. Uh, yeah, I'm not going to go down that route. But I will say like privacy is willingly being degraded for um convenience and that's my stance. Uh, so anyways. Um but yeah, legislation wise uh, I don't know, man, there's so many other fucked up things that it's like where does that um you know, it's important, but uh, I don't know if it's yeah. getting as much attention as it should here, yeah. given the, all the other things that are happening political, uh, politically. So, yeah. Well, I mean, data privacy always in the UK or in the in Europe has been a bigger thing, right? Like we we in the states have always kind of traded our privacy for convenience, just like you're saying. Um, on the forefront of giving our data to every company under the sun just so we can have whatever from them, right? Whereas, like, we've always dealt with that on the EU side of things is that they, they've they taken it a bit more seriously and they've, like, the, the right to retract your information from companies uh, is something that's existed in the UK for, or in the, in the EU for a long time that, as a business, if I do, if I sell things to customers in the in the in Europe, they have the right to come to me and say, "Hey, you have to re remove my information," and I have to be able to prove to them that I removed their information. Right? Yeah. I, we don't have any any sort of similar protections here in the in the states. Yeah, I think though the the difference is if if you at all operate internationally, which is you know the case for a good handful of software companies, um, then you do have to abide by those regulations. So um, it does ultimately impact you if you're a US based company, but you operate uh, internationally. Totally. So, yep. Yeah. So there's that. Um, there's that. I don't know. I think things are getting better. Like you said, I think. Well, and the cool thing is with security is if if the if money is being spent well, and appropriately, um everyone benefits right like there's for those of us in this career field we benefit but then you know the end consumer uh benefits as well hopefully again if spent well yeah so, cool yeah what else do we have to talk about i know we had some other stuff oh this oh man the strong password uh issue <laughs> yeah so that that takes us back to like more application security related i know we've been yeah. on this like huge, doesn't matter like, RCE, whatever, right? We're talking about global privacy issues, but uh, the next oh, one. And is let me 
let me back up real quick and just say, if I seem at all like loopy and tired, it's because I've been in fucking 17 different time zones in the last two months. And I owe so many people emails, responses for specifically for the podcast. And like, there's, I'm, I just apologize. I've been a mess. I've been traveling, as you can see, uh, nonstop. That's why we missed, I think we missed a, a, one of our episodes, Seth, a couple of weeks ago or something like that. It's just been, and I mean, Seth was traveling too. So um, if we seem a little loopy and like, we're just all over the place, like that, that's, that's just the it, way it is. It, it's summer, right? You know, <laughs> it, it, this is what happens when you have a super professional podcast, man. That's <laughs> yeah, I know, right? These time, oh my god, these time zone changes make me feel <laughs> drunk all the time. You know, um, yeah. it, it's that is that is the roughest part: constant jet lag. Um, but yeah, it's whatever. I'm complaining. Like it'll be fine. I got a month break here coming up. I'm I'm going to oh the Hacker One event in Vegas. By the way, um, sweet. Yeah, so we're going to do that again where they, so GitHub and some other companies, we each have our own night and then they just have like 75 or 100 of their best hackers come out um, for the HackerOne platform and we triage and pay out that night. That's the that's the, uh, the gimmick, if you will. That's sort of the deal is like you, um, yeah, we have this event, we pay out everyone. There's a celebration at the end, goes till early in the morning. Uh, it's a lot of fun. It's also very exhausting, but that's not for a month. So it should be really, should be a good time, but at least have a month break. What about yeah, you? That, Are you traveling anywhere? Uh, no, the next, well, actually I was going to, that was one thing I was going to say as I'm, I'm headed down, I'm actually going to go talk about like uh, kind of the secure code review framework at, um, OWASP Phoenix in a couple of weeks. I think it's the 24th of July. I'll be down there um, just at a meetup. Um, so it's kind of a, a preview of what you and I do in the course, but not like it doesn't go into, you know, super a lot of detail because obviously like the two days is a lot more hands-on and we actually teach you what to do. This is more just general info. Um, and then I will be at DEF CON, right? So if you're in Vegas, I'll be there too at doing uh, Hacker Tracker and, if anyone has questions about Hacker Tracker, feel free to hit me up. That's kind of why I'm loopy is I'm worried about getting the latest version of iOS out. And, you know, we could talk about NoSQL versus SQL databases and what I'm hung up on right now, but it probably wouldn't be interesting in two days because I'll be on to the next thing. So <laughs> That sounds about right. Uh, yeah. yeah. No, well, um, yeah, I guess we'll see everybody at DEF CON. That'll be a lot of fun. And uh, I'll use your app again. So. Yeah. Very cool. Sure. Well, I, you know, I am. It's Hacker Tracker, so we are tracking people this year. So. There you go. I actually, I was going to stay till Sunday, but I'm going to leave Saturday now just because I, yeah, I just, I, I honestly, I'm just tired. That's all it is. So uh, I'll be leaving Saturday afternoon, sadly. I'll only be there for like two days. So yeah, I know, whatever. <laughs> well, I whatever. think last year, I, we didn't even see you at all. You flew in, did the event, slept in, and then left. I'm pretty sure. I think I'm, that's basically what this is going to be too. And like, I, I regret it, but you know, that's what it is. So um, I need that break before work. But uh, yeah. yep. anyways, so yeah. Um, what was the other thing? Oh yeah. The strong password gen. I don't know if you want to so, talk about that. Yeah. yeah, let's do. I, I mean, we're almost at an hour, <laughs> but um, so the, the, I mean, this is kind of a recurring theme on the podcast is people taking over or backdooring third-party libraries that projects depend upon, right? Um, 
And once again, uh, there's another one. This one's in the Ruby ecosystem system. You probably have a better like take on it than I do as far as how it happened. So I was going to let you kind of talk through it and then we can circle back around. Well, yeah. So, I mean, I guess what happened was there was a, uh, on Ruby gems specifically, there was a version bump, bump, but it was a very minor version bump. And the, um, like the weird thing, the reason that the, the researcher, I'm calling them a researcher. I think it was just sort of like, well, yeah, now they're classified as a researcher, but whatever. Like it was, I think they were just interested in the fact that there was a minor version bump and there were, weren't like corresponding commits where there was activity, like P normal PR activity where you see like, okay, we're going to make these changes and then they're accepted and we're going to push out this release. There wasn't any of that normal stuff on GitHub. So, there, um, but there's this minor version bump uh, on Ruby gems. So it sounds like the credentials for um, the maintainer of that gem were compromised. Um, and there was this uh, minor change pushed out and the code, if you look at it, it's the craziest thing. It's pretty straightforward. It's an eval statement with a um, call out to a web server and the web server gets back. Well, I think it's actually maybe pastebin. I have to look at the, the link again, um, but it calls out. I think it might be actually just like pastebin in like a raw format and uh, it executes whatever commands it finds in there. And um, so that's it. I mean, you, you install the Ruby gem as part of your, you know, your upgrade or whatever. Um, it makes this, uh, call out, uh, for again, like calling eval and fetching a, uh, response from a URL and, um, it evals that code as system code. And that's, that's, that's the exploit. So sucks. Interesting. <laughs> it sucks. Yeah. And that's just the reason I bring this. I think the reason it's important to talk about this is this, this like supply chain risk is just getting insane. Like um we've seen these gems for like social people social engineered and giving up ownership uh i have to by the way put one of these down. battery power um but yeah anyways um yeah just you uh you hear about people getting uh um social engineered into in giving up their uh, ownership you hear about people um uh, their creds getting, well, they're like leaked or whatever, and those are abused to actually upload new packages. And um, the solution has been, the solutions that have been proposed are like, none of them are amazing, right? Um, like signing the actual uh, gems or NPM modules or eggs or uh, jars at a certain version and locking it that way. Okay, but that's like difficult to maintain. And you know that's the assumption that any of that stuff's secure to begin with, um, because as like noted, and I was—I don't know if I was talking to you, Seth, or I was talking to somebody else, like just within the last couple of days about the fact that um, a lot of the underlying flaws that you find are lurking in software for actually a long time. Yeah. Interestingly enough, it's not like you know, some change just came out and it's like, oh, you know, okay, well that introduced the flaw. It's like this stuff's been around often times when it's found for years. So even if you sign it, you might be signing what I'm saying is like stuff that's been vulnerable for a long time anyway. So, Well, I, I, I mean, and that's just it. It depends on where you're pulling this stuff from, right? And, and that was the, I mean, that's, that's the whole problem is, hey, you're pulling something from rubygems.com. You're, you're trusting it 
Like you could very easily pull down the infected version, sign it, you know, just through an automated process rather than actually checking it. Yeah, I, I don't know if there is a good, a good fix for third-party libraries. Yeah, I mean, some companies say they do because one of the questions uh, for, is from Mag Magno. And by the way, I just want to say that uh, I want to say first of all hi and shout out to Magno because uh, I've talked to, to to him for a long time on the internet before we got to finally meet in person. I think it was like last year in Brazil. Um, so that was super cool. Anyways, he asked about uh, you know. Is there anything else besides software composition analysis that might help detect or prevent this kind of supply chain third party uh, issue? And I think the solutions that have come really, the, the, the solutions that come out is like you have, you have some company that does some basic level of like research on, you know, these are blessed libraries and these aren't. And then um, locked up comes to mind, right? And, you know, they, they tell you if what you're running is secure and secure if you adapt it and stuff like that. Um, but you're relying upon some other company. Um, again, stuff that's been around for a while. Uh, so it's not, none of these are great options. I think one of the things we were, you know, I've been thinking about is like, um, just lo looking for basically patterns that match the most obvious and common. Um, so for instance, like that eval, um, yeah, I, 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 and you would probably, and actually, we were at work talking about this a little bit. It would probably behoove you um, to to check diffs, right? Like check diffs between new updates of like gems or npm modules or whatever it is, like whatever library format. Like checking diffs for these common patterns and seeing if, um, yeah, if anything, any of these minor updates or whatever major updates will introduce any of these common, like known bad patterns. I don't have an answer, but you know, it's I all mean, very it'd be happy. interesting. Yeah, I mean, it'd be interesting to get like Adam Baldwin on and talk to him about it, right? What they're doing at NPM for that kind of stuff. Because mm -hmm. I like, I mean, I know when he was running the Node Security Project, those guys were trying to manually go through stuff as it was being released. But I'm sure they've they've automated a lot of it. Like I don't I don't think there is a there's not a silver bullet from a developer perspective in software composition analysis. There's just not like all that does is known CVEs. We can look at those, check them out, and know whether or not we are running one of the versions that has a known issue in it. It doesn't necessarily do the diff that you're talking about. It's not checking for eval. It's not. It's not doing any static analysis. Uh, so yeah, it, it only identifies CVEs. It's very much like a vulnerability scanner. That's all it is. Sweet. <laughs> that's Sweet. all it is. I mean, there's not- That's all it is. Yeah, I, I, I mean, that, that's all that software composition analysis is. I mean, that's all the dependency check does. That's all that sneak does, right? They don't- it's not a static analyzer. I, it's, I, I, not, yeah. it's not. It's it's. I like. I, I don't know. Like people get. I think part of the problem, and we, we were joking about this recently, right? Was the fact that we call it SCA, software composition analysis, even though that was secure code analysis, right? 
10 yeah. years ago, that's what we called like, oh, that's an SCA product. It was a, you know, like Fortify or AppScan. And so we've kind of commingled those abbreviations and it's making it, it's muddying the waters as far as what that actually does. And uh, I mean, I, like I'm not taking away from the value that the software composition analysis actually gives you because you do need to know if you're running any of those CVEs. Uh, you know, or you're running software that has security vulnerabilities in it. When the new ones are released, you can you can figure that out fairly quickly. But it's not going to analyze that code. It's not going to run. I mean, you if you're running burp against something, you may be able to pull some of those regexes out, especially of like the JavaScript, because it does some static analysis on JavaScript and it looks for things like eval and others. Document uh, allocation, know. stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. And, and so there's tools out there that are kind of doing that but you're gonna to have to come up with your own solution, right? Like I, I'm not as familiar with what Brakeman does on that, um, but it would probably call out a dangerous eval, right? So the way that Brakeman really works Dude, you lost your, I lost your, uh, that was your microphone, that side. I can't hear you now. <laughs> now? <laughs> Yeah, there we go. That's a little bit better. <laughs> well, sorry. Yeah. Um, That's fine. Yeah. Yeah. So anyways. Um, so what does Breakman do? That? Sorry. Does it oh, so identify yeah, eval? No. So, well, yeah, it definitely does. Yeah, of course. Uh, for sure. It, it find, if it's in your code, right? Not in your libraries. So for your libraries, the most that Breakman does is it says, like, there are, there's a handful of active something, right? Like, gems that make up um, rails. So like action, pack, active record, et cetera, there's a bunch. And what it does is it says like, if you've got one of the known versions that has, or one of the versions has like known big issues like SQL injection or has XSS or whatever, it will definitely call that stuff out. Um, but again, it's gotta be part of the rails specific ecosystem. It's not looking at your third party Lips. Now there was a tool bundler audit that um, that did that for a bit, but again, these are known CVs. These aren't finding new things, so the answer is really no. Okay, but if yeah. it's in your code base, of course, yeah, absolutely, it'll find it in your code base. So yeah, it's uh, yeah, yeah I mean, for the pain. It's it's a pipeline problem, right? You you talk about pushing left, right? <laughs> if we go back to the the rant on you know, actual like talks, but like in the DevOps pipeline, you should be scanning those third-party libraries somehow, right? And obviously software composition analysis isn't enough. Uh, so, uh, but then I question, right? Like how do you actually analyze that, right? Do you go run Breakman against all the Ruby gems that you've pulled out? Is that even a possibility? Will that uncover anything? Or right? Are we just are we just doing simple regex searches? Are we running linting tools? It's yeah. Like I, there's just not. I don't know. I, I mean, any static code analyzer is going to tell you that they catch some of this stuff, but it's there's no silver bullet, right? Without Ruby Gems doing something, or somebody that's controlling those repositories actually checking it, or the developer themselves. It's just not going to happen. Like I always like going to what module counts or whatever and looking to see how many new modules are being produced for all the different platforms. It note is some crazy number, like, you know, five to 600 new modules a day or something like that. 
that get pushed into NPM. And there's just no way, right? Without automated tools and some sort of AI that you're ever going to capture backdoors that are going to be, that are being pushed into there. I, I almost way, think you're, yeah. Sorry, I was going to say, like, I did reach out to Adam Baldwin just now while we were on the podcast, see if he'd come on. And he responded saying yes. So I'm going to hold him to that on live, on live hangouts. And uh, well, yeah, I'll send him an email. But so we'll get him on the podcast to like talk about some of this. I mean, he's the one who had that quote where it was like 97% of node applications are comprised of third party libs, which isn't it a weird distinction that we, we don't really, when you do static analysis, for those that aren't familiar, like, if you do static analysis of an application, the like the, maybe the obvious some scanners will find like the obvious you know um, miss like um, bad versions of libraries or if you're you know dumping something it's hard it's very contextual but let's say you're using a logging library and you're dumping something obviously not great into that logging library they'll find some misuse and sometimes misconfiguration of libraries, but for the most part, it's really like, it's very, it's a hard delineation of like just the app code that you wrote, not necessarily the libraries that you're including, which is so fucking weird because so much of your app actually is those libraries. Um, it's just a weird, yeah, it's just a, a weird kind of way that it works. But I think it's, you know, it's due to limitations in, and if you ever watch uh, Justin Collins talk about this, um, you know, it's not the better, the, the more specific of a flow you understand and, and the way we even lay it out in the course where it goes from source to sync, meaning like where it hits a routing mechanism on the app. And then like, what's the last thing that's being called, whether that's a database or sending out an email or messaging some queuing system, whatever it is like, <clears throat> yeah, it's, it, it's, easier when it's pretty when it's pretty like it hits this it hits that and and that's it but when you start talking about the libraries the libraries are so vastly different from what they do and so it's it's hard to unless you're doing straight up like you know what we, it would, this would be a good time to bring in stefan so he can hit us up with a little um plt on this yeah no he de he definitely could right like and i know it's been a problem that we've talked about with him in the past is like our dependencies on these third-party libraries is like, it, it, I mean, it is a huge blind spot for us from a security perspective. Um, just because we don't analyze those, uh, you know, from a, from a manual code review perspective, I have a tendency to push that off as far as clients aren't paying me to review third-party libraries, right? I review their code and then when it calls into that third party library, I'm like, okay, that's kind of the end of the scope because I don't, I just don't have the time to dig in much past that layer. Um, I, I mean, I wish that like we could and we could get the time to do it because I think there's, there's an opportunity there to actually figure out a good way to automate this. Um, I, I, mean, I mean, I almost go back to the whole detective controls, right? Exactly what you're saying, you know, you're looking for specific patterns and the second that you, like anything's outside of that, hey, maybe it's worth a manual look at what that library is doing. Um, but that assumes that you've got some sort of a detective control on those libraries themselves. Most of those just get pulled in when the developers are, are building the application and then 
everyone moves on, even though those libraries stick around for years and years and it's using outdated version of Java struts 1.1 or whatever it is, right? <laughs> Not that I've ever seen that or you know, <laughs> it was my life two weeks ago. No, that's not the case, but yes. Yeah. So yeah, I, I, mean, I don't know. I, I like I don't have a good solution for that, but it's a it's a problem that I run into over and over, and it sounds like you do too. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's for me. Source to sync doesn't. Yeah, like yeah, it, it's a problem that has been since like I first started doing source code reviews. This has been a problem. So. Um, I was going to mention that Magno had written that um, Sonotype, he said Sonotype SCA has a feature where you can lock it down to the specific libs and versions that are known safe and don't allow your devs builds, download, use other libs or versions from your artifact repo. And this is going back to what we were originally talking about. This is one of the several types of solutions that people implement, implement but again, it like doesn't, and it is a, to a degree, it's great, but again, like, the vulnerabilities that get discovered or t have typically been in that software for a while, or, you know, you can't be guaranteed that what you've got, um, just for whatever reason, you can't be guaranteed that what you have is, is safe anyways. And then also like sometimes, you know, it's locked into a specific version. Um, what happens when a security patch comes out? Right. I mean, it's, it's, a, yeah. I mean, there's, there's a comment. Yeah. No, no, I was just going to say a lot of manual like, work basically. Yeah. It is. It's a lot of manual work. And I, like I always go back to the tech debt that you induce, right? When you lock versions like that, it means that whenever there's an update, there is, it means that somebody, somebody, whether it's a developer or a security person has to go back through, check out the latest version, make sure that it's like the revs are all good and then and do the updates. I mean, there's a lot that goes into updating patch it or patching applications and patching third-party libraries. And that's always going to be the case when you have applications, but then I run into, yeah, I, I don't know what it is, but even like fortune 100 companies that I've dealt with have a hard time keeping developers on board for old applications. And so what happens when they all go stale and you're running, like I said, an old version of struts, that has multiple CVEs and you have no one on staff that can even like change the custom code that your application or that your developers actually built, much less go in and upgrade third-party libraries. Like you're just, yeah. you're, you're kind of stuck without reinventing that whole application and rolling something new out without throwing it away. But if it's a huge moneymaker for you, that's not, necessarily an option that's not something that the business will consider doing uh, yeah it, it's such a fine line i just i, I don't have an uh, you know i don't have an answer which solve is what's so frustrating jeez come on you had like an hour to solve this figure it <laughs> out man gosh <laughs> what's wrong with you <laughs> fucking sad can't yeah. fix anything so, so basically we need a you know a third-party lib intrusion, you know, a flaw detective system, like an intrusion, an IDS that's built on top of your, <laughs> on top of your DevOps pipeline that all it does is notifies you that there's a flaw in third-party libraries that it's constantly scanning. I don't know. Like, it's just, it's Yeah, hard. I mean, one of the comments Magna, Magna said was that it's probably a manual process to analyze between diffs of, like, 
updates on libraries, but I don't think that it is. Um, and for the reasons, for, well, for the specific reason that if your update includes like, we'll say you're using, um, you know, system or eval or whatever, like OS dot, whatever the, what is it, OS dot exec or something like that. If you're, yeah. if you see that in the code, like, it's probably not super safe to begin with and needs to be analyzed anyways, but is also very likely a backdoor, right? I mean, maybe not, but I would think that the person, I mean, granted, like, again, this is like, like many things, it's contextual. So if you've got two people and you've got like thousands and thousands of, of libraries being updated, okay, like, I don't know, they're, you're getting your initial high rate of, or you're getting some like, I don't know, hundreds of results a day. That might be pretty difficult for sure. But like, are you, would you see that with like eval, os.exec, stuff like that? That's pretty clearly potentially dangerous. I don't know. Yeah. I would well, think I, not, but I don't, I don't really know. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, the diff is a good place to start if you're, if you're currently having a heartburn about this, just basically being able to start build your own list of, Hey, I know that in Ruby X, Y, and Z, you know, I know that these are dangerous commands. So we're just going to assume that our third-party libraries right now are safe, and I'm just going to start running the diff on anything new that's coming in, um, any minor updates, and that doesn't break changes. And I'm gonna, I'm just going to look for that. Right, that's a good place to start to at least give yourself some awareness, and then you can start to chip away at, hey, maybe there's instances of that that already exist in some of those libraries. So maybe we need to go take a look at those and we can prioritize it. But at the very least, you're starting from, all right, we're at a known state right now. We don't want to, we don't want to make it worse, right? Whatever comes in, whatever's new, we don't want to make it worse. So we're gonna we're gonna analyze those diffs. We're gonna analyze the new code as it comes in and actually check to see if there are some of those changes that we're concerned about. And then and then you can address more from there, just given the time and the you know, whatever that you find and the, you know, the appetite that your organization has. I don't, I don't really think there's another way to go about it right now because there's not going to be a tool out there that's going to be able to cover everything. I mean, I know Sonotype and I know that, you know, Fortify is going to come in and tell you they cover and they secure all the things from a, you know, from a, yeah, a software analysis perspective, but they don't. Yeah, yeah, and you can't blame. I mean, they're trying to sell, yep. trying to meet some numbers, whatever. But like, yeah, I mean, it's not. I'm gonna try. By the way, to see if I can put in the other. You've done this game too, where you switch between yeah. like the the sides of the AirPod. <laughs> I've seen. Yeah, I've definitely seen you do this before. So you're, you're my inspiration. Um, but yeah, like I mean, yeah, that's their job. Sell you their thing is amazing and a silver bullet, but. Uh, don't be fooled. I don't think people that are listening to this podcast probably are. So, um, at all. Um, but yeah, like there's no, there's not going to be a tool that covers everything. Um, there's that mix of human, like, I just, I think you have to find some, well, and there is, I, I don't want to like promote the company I work for too much, but, um, I will say like, if you've been paying attention, well, Microsoft, I know Seth's always paying attention, but, uh, yeah, if you notice, um, GitHub, Bot, Dependabot, and um, uh, has released the dependency graph API and has like built some infrastructure. So 
I know there's definitely a um, shift to focus on the supply chain and the security of that, where there's like this, just this massive sort of awakening of like that's that's um, and on the note of Sonotype, Josh, uh, I'm forgetting his not uh, Josh uh, Corman is what I'm trying mm-hmm. to say. Uh, he did a lot to actually he spent years um, promoting the security of and I know like part of that's you know under the Sonotype blanket for sure they have a an invested interest, but he did a lot to uh, promote um, the you know, third party uh, like the supply chain uh, awareness and some fixes. And, um, so now it's sort of becoming like a thing that people are understanding. It's that it's super serious and becoming a really big problem. So anyways, yeah, not solved, but hopefully getting better. Yeah. Uh, Magno did have, he had one other question. He's like, which team would be best suited to evaluate the, evaluate the results of those suspicious dips, securities or devs? Um, Ooh, that's a good point. Um, but I don't. I just, I just responded yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a shared responsibility. Is probably the best answer. But um, it also depends on your engineering staff. Like there, I mean, we because yeah. we've talked to, we've had a lot of people who work like Segment and Netflix. You know, they work with these teams that are just amazing. Like you could totally offload that to the software devs, and I have full confidence they would be able. to, pretty easily see like, oh, a system command based off of calling out to this paste bin URL. Yeah, that seems fishy. Um, but then there's other people we've talked to on this podcast and in just general life and our experiences where it's like, uh, it's, uh, it's, I would I would rather rely on security than um, developers. So it's, uh, Yeah, it depends on who you've got, right? If you've got a good security champion program and everything like that, a large organization and very sharp devs that are interested in security. I, I think you can push it off to them just fine. Um, but I, I mean, I run into smaller organizations all the time where, you know, they, you know, even having a discussion on SQL injection is beyond them. Right. And so you, you've just got to take your audience into account. Right. Uh, like, again, there's no, there's no one answer. It just depends on your organization. Yeah. But uh, if you can get, yeah, if you can get both doing it. um, Yeah. But, you know, also that's, yeah. I mean, I don't, if if you could get both um, sides to to get involved, that'd be the best solution. So, or at least use, you know, maybe software developers as your first tier. And if they're unsure or need feedback um, from security, then reach out to security. Um would probably be the better way only because security is always outnumbered by developers. Um, that's the only reason. It's just a numerical thing. It's like, well, there's a hundred developers and there's nine security people will say just putting yeah. out a random mass quote, yep. quote uh, ratio, but yeah. Yeah. He, he brings up another point too. Sorry. He like Magna's just keeping us going here tonight. Um, <laughs> if you look only for specific words like eval, isn't that a blacklist? Can it be encoded bypassable from an attacker? Yeah, you can. Right. Also, depending on your code base, you might get a lot of false positives. That, that's, that's calling back to the reason that I was saying that you want to start from like, this is a known state that you're in. Um, because then it gives you a spot. Like even if you have a whole bunch of false positives, you're only looking at the diff between 
what you currently have and what the new stuff introduces. And then you can chip away at those false positives if, as you move through. As far as building the blacklist, you're, you're absolutely right. Um, like it can be encoded. I mean, most likely if, it, if it's just an internal tool that you've developed to actually look for those, it's not going to be something that the, the attackers that are building those backdoors, they may not necessarily be trying to bypass that blacklist. Um, but it also means that there would be other things that you'd be looking for. Um, maybe you'd be looking for calls out to Pastebin, right? Or other sites that you have not seen the third party library call out to in the past. So rather than building a blacklist, you're looking for specific behaviors. That gets a little bit more difficult because you're actually having to run the code itself to see what's going on. So it's not as easy as building some sort of a regex to do that. Uh, but you're going for low hanging fruit here. You're going for backdoors uh, and then hopefully having the det detective controls in place to actually notice when something else goes wrong. I mean, if or you wow. look at the m minus some of the, because there was there were at least a couple like Bitcoiny type like e, e money um, mining backdoors that were obfuscated. Those were yeah. I mean that's. I mean the obfuscation. That's less, pretty, yeah. yeah. It, well, it's that's less easy, but about. like yeah. You 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 said low hanging fruit, and that's what you're really you're that's what you're really going for. I wouldn't call it a blacklist because a blacklist is more like. Because, you know, whitelist is like, only allow this. And blacklist is like, don't allow this. We're not even saying don't allow it. Just like if you see it, it's probably, it's weird. You shouldn't you shouldn't see it. Um, and it's more of just like sending up a signal on low-hanging, like easy to find stuff. And to that point, going back to it, like some of the, the, the vulnerable libraries we've seen released, they're not complicated with the exception of those obfuscated Bitcoining Bitcoin mining type breaches or insertions of code, I should say. Like just, a lot of these are just super simple things like that where they're just calling out to like paste bin or some URL and um, pulling stuff down. Yep. So. So start from where you're at. Right? That's, <laughs> yeah. that's, I mean, that's my suggestion. Don't, don't try to go find a silver bullet yet. Just start from where you're at and actually analyze what's new. Yeah. All right. Uh, well, we, yeah, we've already been going for We've almost been going for an hour and a half. So we'll go ahead and cut it for tonight. Um, <laughs> That's funny because I was like, oh, man, I'm really super tired tonight. Like, <laughs> I don't think I, you know, like, I'm going to try and get through this. And uh, it's always yeah, it's fun, go. man. We end up going like over and it's like, shit, we went over again. So yeah, yep. it's a good time. No worries. Um, yeah. But uh, we'll be back next week. Sure. We will. Uh, um, yeah, we will. And I, like I said, I have a break for a month. So back to regular scheduling. There's a bunch of people that I need to like respond to. Um, so I'll lock down uh, some guest speakers coming up. Um, again, I just, I've sucked at email because of all the travel. Um, yeah. And when I'm not traveling, you know, you know how it goes, like you get back from a trip or whatever. And your first thought isn't, Hey, let me go email people. Your first thought is, oh my God, I just want to see my family and just relax and sit on the couch for a little bit and stuff like that and like get back to normal. So yeah. um, excuses, excuses. I know. Yeah, yeah. 
but uh, yeah, thank, thank, thanks for everybody for listening, especially Magno for you know giving us some fodder there to actually discuss things. Um, yeah, find us online. Come join our Slack. Uh, you know, we're fairly active there when we're not traveling, right? Uh, <laughs> sometimes reason. when we are traveling. Sometimes when we are. Sometimes it just depends, right? Um, but yeah. Appreciate all everybody listening and come find us at DEF CON or at other locations. We'll definitely have absolute AppSec stickers and swag to give away. But um, yeah. Cool. Anyway, Ken, thanks for joining from the hotel room. Appreciate it. Super cool, Austin. Well, not cool. Holy shit, it's hot here. But um, yeah, cool. <laughs> cool. All right. Thanks, everybody. All right. Bye.